Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is our truth. It is our foundation. It is your people hearing directly from you, Lord. And thank you for Ryan, God, that we, um, we hear you through him. Um, and so I pray, Lord, that you would inspire every single word that he says, um, that we would just be attentive to what you have for us this morning, Lord, that we would receive it um, just with open hearts and open ears, um, and that you would do a mighty work in us today, Lord, this morning, that we would feel hopeful that the day is at hand, God, that you have us and you care for us so much. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. Hey, I'm so excited to be back in Romans with you. Man, it's been so good. We're on week 25. Isn't that awesome? Uh, so we're going to keep keep trucking through this, and I am so thankful that I didn't box this text into the rest of Romans 13, because there is so much here. There's a lot here that we're going to discover today. Um, this text um, was, was the text that one of the most renowned Christian leaders in the history of the church uh, was converted, you know, when reading this text. And, and, and his name is Augustine. Um, and and Augustine, the reason why, one of the reasons why Augustine is so significant is because the way that we think systematically about theology, he really gave us a lot of insight into that. But also he wrote one of the most powerful autobiographies that, that has ever been written called Confessions. And uh, his, journey, his journey started like this. Uh, he, he, wrestled, he started wrestling deeply with the problem of evil, and he was 31 before he was converted. Um, he started with that age-old question that many people have, where does evil come from? And so this question plagues him uh, that, that all things are good. He realizes that all things are good, uh, even if they are corrupted. Um, and, and he wrote this autobiography, and, he, and, and it says this. I'm just going to uh, quote a few excerpts here. They could not be corrupted if they were supremely good. He says, referring to the supreme goodness of God. But unless they were good, they could not be corrupted, he adds, referring to, uh, uh, to man. This leads him to his final conclusion about evil, and this is great. Evil does not exist as a substance, but it is a perversion of the will bent aside from God. But, but, but even after discovering this, you think, okay, I discovered that, that's great, that's really helpful. It still wasn't enough for him to adopt the Christian faith wholesale. During that time, you know, he's learned about where evil comes from. He discovers something super troubling, something that he cannot shake, that that evil exists inside of him. He goes on to say this, and now you set me face to face with myself that I might see how ugly I was, how crooked and sordid, despotted and ulcerous, and I looked and I loathed myself. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is a key turning point in every Christian's journey. It's the point where you begin to take ownership in your battle against the flesh. Augustine cries out after this, how long, O oh Lord, how long will I live in this despair when you see that ugliness that's inside of you? He goes on to say this, I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard a voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Augustine opens the scriptures to Romans 13, 13, and this passage hits him so hard that it becomes the catalyst for his transformation and the work that he has given to us uh, through his life. And as he reflects, 
It's the day that he began to become set free from the power of the flesh. And that verse says this, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine writes this, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to. For instantly as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the full light of certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. You see, Augustine walked away from the text that, way, that day so differently. Now, it didn't mean that the presence of his flesh went away. It meant that the power of his flesh was vanished. That's, that's what he's talking about, that he now had a new pathway to battle against the flesh. And we could, you know, one of the ways to define the flesh is any way that you seek to make your life work apart from the Holy Spirit. That's what the flesh is. Um, and, and so this is what we're gonna be talking about today. Um, one of the things that we learned from Augustine's story is this, is that if you're going to be a Christian, it requires that we actually battle to follow Jesus. So here's our big idea for today. The life of love is a life of battle. Would you say that with me? The life of love is a life of battle. So I wanna to talk to you about the three battlefronts of Romans 13. The first battle is the battle to love our neighbor as ourself. The second is a battle to keep an expectant perspective. And the third is to battle to keep putting on Christ. So let's dig into that first part here, the battle to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, you may remember uh, before Palm Sunday, uh, we were in the first half of Romans 13, which called us to live as responsible dual citizens. Basically, what we discovered in Romans 13 is that because of everything Jesus has done for us, we're called to be the best citizens on the face of the planet because we are ultimately citizens of heaven. And we have a reason to care about the things of the earth because we belong to the God who made them. And, and now he shifts that kind of, that responsibility to the government that we have as Christians to agree in every place that we possibly can in our conscience. And he turns it to the individual's responsibility. And unless our future is secure and we know it's good, it's hard to endure life in this world faithfully. But that text taught us that we're called to partner in every way that we can with the world around us. So individually, because we belong to Jesus, that should change the way that we interact with one another, shouldn't it? We know that it should, right? We are called to love our neighbor, but not in some kind of careless and sloppy way. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. The person that you love the most in this world is you right? Every single person. The person we love the most is us. He's, the, the text is calling us to take that mindset into how we see other people. Here's what Romans 13, 8 through 10 says. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. All of those, you know, those last of the Ten Commandments that are focused toward other people, he says are summed up in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we can look at the Ten Commandments, and Jesus sums it up like this. Like the first four or five, 
love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last, you know, five, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is summed up in that great commandment, and Paul's talking about that right here. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. So, so Paul continues with this debtor language that he's been using in Romans. In Romans 1.14, he essentially says that we're in debt to the unbelieving world to share the gospel. That because we've been given this treasure, we are debtors to the rest of the world to share the treasure. In Romans 8.12, he says we're in debt to the Holy Spirit to put to death our flesh and to walk in the Spirit. And in Romans 13, he says, you know, we're in debt to the government, right? We're called to, we're called to, to be servants in this world. Have you ever had a debt before? Oh, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing about debt. You always feel it, right? You always feel it. I can remember when we first got married and we had a ton of student loans. Oh, I was like, goodness, we're making this money. This is awesome. Oh, wait, there's a huge check we're sending to the student loan company, right? Or you, maybe you got a note on a car and, you know, you can't wait to pay that thing off. Every extra dollar you get, is, it just kills you to pay interest. You just feel it. I think what Paul is inviting us to do is to feel the weight for our neighbors, to have a consistent pressure, not out of fear, but a consistent pressure that we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is the only debt that will remain for Christians until Jesus returns. So that same attention that you've paid to financial debt in your life, we're called to focus on how well we love others. God is interested in the quality of the love that we offer to others. In other words, we'll never reach a day where we've loved enough. We'll never be able to say, hey, God, I've loved enough. Instead, as, John, as Jesus says in John 13, we are called to take up the mentality of Jesus. And Jesus says this as he looks at the last week of his life, and he looks at these disciples that are going to reject him. They're not going to receive what he offers them. The scriptures say this before he washes their feet. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Church, we are called to love our neighbors to the end. We're called to give everything that we have because we are so filled up in Jesus. We can't withhold anything from our neighbors. This is what Jesus is after. And this love that we offer is not because we are wonderful people who just love to serve. Right? That's not our starting point. If you think that your starting point is you're a good person and so you'll offer out of that, you'll never offer the kind of love that Jesus wants you to offer the world. Our starting point instead is this. While we were unlovable, God set his love on us and he made us lovable. Therefore, we have no right to withhold from others what God has freely given to us. That's the truth of the gospel. So whenever I refuse to love others, I ref whenever I choose to give them what I think they deserve and to, instead of what God has given to me, I'm playing the place of God in that decision. Because when the gospel's freely given to you, it flows freely to others. You might say it like this, that there's kind of a root and a rule of love as we battle to love our neighbors. The root, he's saying this, that, that there is, that this love that we have to offer to others it has come from God. As, as 1 John says, we love because he first loved us, right? So we don't offer out of something that we've just come up with and accumulated on our own. We offer out of the abundance of eternity to others. 
That we, that, that Paul will say it like this in Ephesians 3. He says that we're rooted in love. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches, so he's got the riches, the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in knowledge, no, you being rooted and grounded in love, his love is what enables us to comprehend what God has done for us and offer ourselves to the world, is what the scripture say. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints throughout all of time what is the breadth and the length and the height, the four-dimensional love of Christ that surpasses understanding. That's what we offer, church. That's what we offer. It's an otherworldly kind of love. But there's also this kind of rule of love, right? Like some of you are into the, the kind of... Um, kind of thinking of having a rule of life or a principle of life. That's kind of a, a common thing that people are, are kind of living out of now, which is great. It's kind of a value system, right, uh, for folks. Um, to, to love God and to love your neighbors ourselves. God gives us this kind of rule here. And he goes on to talk about the law in some very specific language, doesn't he? He, he calls out what it looks like to love your neighbor. You see, what the world does, uh, love, in, love in this world isn't specific, it's, it's often vague and it's, and it's unclear. Um, living a loving life for most of the world just means don't offend other people. And sometimes, sometimes the offering of love that we have to give others is going to be really offensive. And we're only going to offer it because God's called us to, right? I can think of some very offensive things that I've needed to hear in my life. I bet you can too. And so he gets really specific about what it looks like to love the world. It's don't kill the world, right? Don't kill others, right? Don't, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet. Love is specific. And he says in doing this, when we choose to do this through the power of the Holy Spirit because we're rooted in Christ, we're actually fulfilling the law. We are living out the rule of love. That, you know, in one sense, the law has been completely fulfilled in Jesus, right? For our justification, our legal standing in Jesus, it's finished. But in another sense, love controls us. It now sets our agenda for us. We had our plans before we come to, came to know Jesus, but now God has plans for us. And those plans include loving our neighbor as ourselves. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, Paul, Paul, Paul talks about his, life in, his new life in Christ like this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. It sets the agenda. It, it plans out my day. It controls my calendar because we have concluded this, because one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that those who live might not longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, when we choose to let love control us and direct us, we're operating out of the power of the resurrection. That's what Jesus has called us to do. The law is the path of love, but not only just the outward keeping of the law, but keeping the law from a pure and sincere heart. And Jesus goes through this in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? When he takes the law and he puts it on the heart level, he says, hey, look, 
You know, if you've, if you've had a lustful heart, it's like you've committed adultery. Uh, if you've had anger in your heart, it's like you've committed murder. That's what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. It starts with this rooted nature in Jesus being strengthened in our inner being and expressed through what we offer others. We are called to battle against our selfish tendencies to express love to our neighbors. We are debtors to love because this is what the gospel does in us. So consider this. How does this hit you today? Is there anyone that you have just flat out not been willing to love? You, you just haven't offered yourself at all because you've been hurt. I'm not, calling, I'm not telling you to be reckless and not have limits and all that. Kind of, I'm just saying, is there anybody you just cut out and said they are unlovable? If there is, you're in sin. You're in sin because you don't get to set the agenda of love. The Holy Spirit does that. Why have you pulled that out, that relationship out from under the blood of Christ? What broken cistern are you drawing from? Friend, what would it look like for you to see your life as an opportunity to express and extend the love of God to others? Because you are God's plan for the world to experience God's love. Your plan A, his spirit through you. All right, let's keep going. Let's keep going here. So we got the battle to love our neighbors ourselves, uh, and uh, now we got the battle to keep an expectant perspective on life. The second battlefront of love that we face as God's children is to keep an expectant perspective on life. Uh, in J.R. Tolkien's work, The Fellowship of the Ring, there's this moment where, where Gandalf is talking about the significance of how we view time. As Gandalf explains the history of the ring to young Frodo, he says this, all we have to do, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Ooh, man, that's close to scripture, isn't it? That's close. That's, they got close. That's almost inspired, right? So true. A couple of y'all laugh. That's good. Um, that's what the apostle confronts us with. How we view the end of time deeply impacts how you view the time that God has given you each and every day on this earth. How you think about that day deeply impacts how you view today. Here's what Romans 13, 11 says. He says, love your neighbors yourself. Tells us how to do that. And he says this, besides this, you know the time. You know the time. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, church. For salvation is closer today than when we first believe. It's coming with ever increasing velocity toward our lives, is what he's saying. Paul's reminding the church in Rome of the time in, in, in historical redemptive history that they live in. And it's this, that the people of God looked forward to a Messiah. That Messiah came, we crucified him, he raised, he sent his spirit, and now we wait for his return. We live in that chapter, the final chapter of redemption. We live in that chapter, church. And he's reminding them of this, because in the Bible, there's this age and the age to come, and we live in between the already and the not yet. And what I mean by that is this. Jesus has already come, and he's coming again. We live, in, we live in the valley between those two summits, right? And we are called to live in a specific and expectant way. You know, if Gandalf is right, and I think he is, we have to decide how we will spend 
the most valuable resource that any of us have, and that is time. In the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, there are two predominant words for time. There is kairos time, and there is chronos time. Chronos time is quantitative, forward-propelling, measurable moments in life. It is the kind of time that you keep on your wrist. Most of us think about the return of Jesus in that kind of time. We think, I'll just live how I want to until Jesus returns, right? We just think, yeah, I, I, I'm just waiting for his return. And, and we, we read all these books where people try to predict when Jesus is going to return, even though Jesus told us no one knows except the Father. We still read them anyway, don't we? Because we're, we're so enamored with Kronos time. Kairos time is different. It's an appointed time or an opportune moment for action. Which one do you think Paul is using here? Which one? Kairos time, right? We're in a moment, he's saying. Many Christians think chronologically about their lives and Jesus' return. Not so many are thinking, if I can use this word, chirologically, right? I want to encourage you to think chirologically about your life. What does it look like for you to be awake in the gospel today? What does it look like for you to take advantage of the moments because the time is close and your salvation is closer to you than the day that you first believed? Do you know the time today? I'm not asking you to look at your wrist. I'm asking you if you know the time, the season that you live in. Do you know what's at stake in this time? That we, as a people, are in a very significant place in history. We are witnesses of Jesus Christ, and we're all beneficiaries of his wondrous works that he's imputed to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, we, we already know this, we are not yet, we've not yet seen its fulfillment. And the day of salvation is closer today than it ever has been. Jesus could come back this afternoon. If Jesus, if we really thought that Jesus could come back at any moment, we would live a lot differently, wouldn't we? You would do things today that you've been, you thought about putting off for 20 years, right? You would spend your money in ways today that are differently. You would prioritize your calendar in a different way. This text is calling us to live as if Jesus is going to come back today. So I want you to consider that question today. If you don't think Jesus could come back today, you're crazy, because he could. He'd come back today, he'd come back in... 5,000 years. I don't know, but I know that it's closer today than it was yesterday. And because of that, I want to live differently. I want to live with my whole heart out, seeking to please God in my life and follow his will. This is a call to live awake in the gospel. And to be awake in the gospel means that we are attentive to the drift of our own heart. It means that we're eager to think chirologically about every moment that God gives us and what's at stake in those moments. But this, too, is a battle because the easy thing to do is, as Keith Green once said, man, he was so convicting when he wrote, some of y'all know who he is. He wrote a song called Asleep in the Light. Whew. Go listen to that this afternoon. It'll lead you to repentance, I promise. I don't ever want to be asleep in the light. I don't ever want to be able to describe my life that way, that I'm just asleep in the light. This is what Paul's calling us to, to not be asleep in the light. I don't want to be content in the darkness, to be content with the flesh living in me. 
I want to be alive and perceptive and perspective and expectant of King Jesus to use my life to make it count for his glory and to transform me in the process. What would it mean for you today to think more chirologically about the time that God has given you in this world? What would that look like for you? All right, I'm gonna close out our time with this battle to keep putting on Christ. And um, I'm gonna do something a little different today uh, in our time is I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna preach a little bit here. I'm gonna ask the band to come on up. I'm gonna preach a little bit here and I'm gonna give us some room to breathe and respond before we take the table today. The, t- the text that's, that, that we're getting ready to hit right now has had me in tears and on my knees all week long. And, and I think if, if we'll let it breathe and open our hearts up and experience the Holy Spirit today, it's probably gonna do the same thing in you. And so I wanna give space for that today. So I'm gonna preach this and then I'm gonna even open up a place for prayer. There's gonna be a couple of us up here who be willing to pray over you. A place for you to respond to Jesus. I'm, I'm asking us as a church to consider what it means to corporately repent together. To not take this table with the flesh alive in our hearts, acting like everything's good. That could be the most dangerous thing for you to do today. So these, these guys are gonna, they're gonna start playing. I'm gonna read this text for us today. It comes from Romans 13, 12 through 14. Here's what he says. He says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies or any other sexual sin, not in drunkenness or any other addictive behavior, not in sexual immorality with yourself or others, not in sensuality, just chasing what feels good, not in quarreling, unnecessary fighting and jealousy that lives in your heart and keeps you distant from others, but instead put on Christ. It's a command. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The flesh means this. It means operating in the flesh is any human intent that lives inside of you. It's any engagement or pursuit that's not flowing from a dependence on the Holy Spirit. And it can't be pleasing to God, friends. And the scriptures say that that it requires two violent priorities. One is to violently cast off the works of darkness, to not let them live in you one more day, and to put on the armor of light. And you cannot put on the armor of light when you are living in the darkness. Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Some of us believe that the flesh doesn't have any desires for our life, and he does. The enemy uses our flesh to keep us in the dark, to keep us away from the light. The promise of this world says that you can let all of that flesh live inside of you. All of those ways that you've made your life work apart from the Holy Spirit and that it won't affect you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. So my question to you as we have this time of response today is this. Do you have a grip on where the flesh is resurrecting itself inside of your own heart today? Are you aware of it? Because there's no such thing as people who don't battle against the flesh. If you're in here today and you say, I don't battle against the flesh, you're lying. There are only people who battle and people who don't. And my prayer is that this would be a church that battles against the flesh. 
that we seek the better, the pure, motivated heart of obedience that's come from the power of the Holy Spirit. And as John Owen once famously said, friends, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And so I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna give you a time to respond. I'm not gonna um, fabricate how I want you to respond. I don't want you to respond unless you feel called to respond. I just don't wanna get in the way of the Holy Spirit this morning. And so we've made some space up here. If you'd like to come up here and pray and kneel, be a couple elders up here praying for you. You can kneel in your seat. You can grab your spouse. You can do whatever you need to do today to do business with the Lord before we turn to this table. But may we battle well against our flesh today. I'm gonna pray for you and then we're gonna have a time to respond before we take the table. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.